A drive in the motor car. Somehow or other, I got through the first term of St. Peter's, and tomorrow, the end of December, my mother came over on the paddle boat and take me in my trunk home for the Christmas holidays. Oh, the bliss and wonder of being with the family once again after all those weeks of fierce discipline. Unless you have been to boarding school when you are very young, it is absolutely impossible to appreciate the delights of living at home. It is almost worth going away because it's so lovely coming back. I could hardly believe that I didn't have to wash in cold water in the mornings or keep silent in the corridors or say sir to every grown-up man I met or use a chamber pot in the bedroom or get flicked with wet towels while naked in the changing room or eat porridge for breakfast that seemed to be full of little round lumpy gray sheep's droppings or walk all day long in perpetual fear of the long yellow cane that lay on top of the corner cupboard in the headmaster's study. The weather was exceptionally mild that Christmas holiday, and one amazing morning our whole family got ready to go for our first drive in the first motor car we had ever owned. The new motor car was an enormous long black French automobile called a De Dion Boton, which had a canvas roof that folded back. The driver was to be that 12 years older than me, half-sister, now aged 21, who had recently had her appendix removed. She had received two full half-hour lessons in driving from the man who delivered the car, and in that enlightened year of 1925, this was considered quite sufficient. Nobody had to take a driving test. You were your own judge of competence, and as soon as you felt you were ready to go, off you jolly went. As we all climbed into the car, our excitement was so intense we could hardly bear it. How fast will you go? We cried out. Will it do 50 miles an hour? I'll do 60, the ancient sister answered. Her tone was so confident and cocky it should have scared us to death, but it didn't. Oh, let's make it do 60, we shouted. Will you promise to take us up to 60? We shall probably go faster than that, the sister announced, pulling on her driving gloves and trying to scarf over her head in the approved driving fashion of the period. The canvas hood had been folded back because of the mild weather, converting the car into a magnificent open tour. Up front, there were three bodies in all, the driver behind the wheel, my half-brother, aged 18, and one of my sisters, aged 12. In the back seat, there were four more of us, my mother, aged 40, two small sisters, aged 8 and 5, and myself, aged 9. Our machine possessed one very special feature, which I don't think you see on the cars of today. This was a second windscreen in the back solely to keep the freeze off the faces of the back seat passengers when the hood was down. It had a long center section and two little end sections that could be angled backwards to deflect the wind. We were all quivering with fear and joy as the driver let out the clutch and great long black automobile leaned forward and stole into motion. Are you sure you know how to do it? We shouted. Do you know where the brakes are? Be quiet, snapped the ancient sister. I've got to concentrate. Down the drive we went and out into the village of Landaff itself. Fortunately, there was very few vehicles on the roads in these days. In those days, 
Occasionally, you met a small truck or delivery van, and now and again a private car, but the danger of colliding with anyone el anything else was fairly remote so long as you kept the car on the road. The splendid black tour kept crept slowly through the village with the driver passing the rubber bulb of the horn every time we passed a human being, whether it was the butcher boy on his bicycle or just a pedestrian squirreling on the pavement. Soon we were entering a countryside of green fields and high hedges with not a soul in sight. You didn't think I could do it, did you? cried the ancient sister, turning round and grinning at us all. Now you keep your eyes on the road, mother said nervously. Go faster, we shouted. Go on, make her go faster, put your foot down. We're only doing 15 miles an hour. Spurred on by our sh shouts and taunts, the ancient sister began to increase the speed. The engine roared and the body vibrated. The driver was clutching the steering wheel as though it were the hair of a drowning man, and we all watched the speedometer needle creeping up to 20, then 25, then 30. We were probably doing about 35 miles an hour when we came suddenly to a sharpish bend on, in the road, the ancient sister never having been faced with a situation like this before. Shouted, help, and slammed on the brakes and swung the wheel widely around. The real rear wheels locked and went into a fierce sideways skid and then with a marvelous crunch of mudguards and metal we went crashing into the hedge the front passengers all shot through the front windscreen and the back passengers all shot through the back windscreen glass there was no triplex then flew in all directions and so did we my brother and one sister landed on the bonnet of the car someone else was catapulted out onto the road and at least one small sister landed in the middle of the hawthorn hedge. But miraculously, nobody was hurt very much except me. My nose had been cut almost clean off my face as I went through the rear windscreen, and now it was hanging on only by a single small thread of skin. My mother disentangled herself from the scrimmage and grabbed a handkerchief from her purse, she clapped the dangling nose back into place fast and held it there. Not a cottage or a person was in sight, let alone a telephone. Some kind of bird started twittering in a tree farther down the road. Otherwise, all was silent. My mother was bending over in the rear seat and saying, Lean back and keep yourself still. To the ancient sister, she said, Can you get this thing going again? The sister pressed the starter and to everyone's surprise, the engine fired. Back it out of the hedge, mother said, and hurry. The sister had trouble finding reverse gear. The cogs were grip grinding against one another with a fearful noise of tearing metal. I've never actually driven it backwards, she admitted. At last, everyone with the exception of the driver, my mother and me, was out of the car and standing on the road. The noise of gear wheels grinding against each other was terrible. It sounded as though a lawnmower was being driven over hard rocks. The ancient sister was using bad words and going crimson in the face. But then my brother le leaned his head over the driver's door and said, Don't you have to put your foot in the on the clutch? The harassed driver depressed the clutch pedal and the gears meshed and one second later the great black beast leapt backwards out of the hedge and carried careered across the road into the hedge on the other side try to keep cool mother said go forward slowly at last the shattered motor car was driven out of the second hedge and stood sideways across the road blocking the highway 
A man with a horse and cart now appeared on the scene, and the man dismounted from his cart and walked across to her car and leaned over the rear door. He had a big, drooping mustache, and he wore a small black bowler hat. You're in a fair old mess here, ain't you? He said to my mother. Can you drive a motor car? My mother asked him. Nope, he said, and you're walking up the old road. I've got a thousand fresh laid eggs in this cart, and I want to get them to the market before noon. Get out of the way, my mother told him. Can't you see there's a child in here who's badly injured? One thousand fresh laid eggs, the man repeated, staring straight at my mother's hand and the blood-soaked handkerchief and the blood running down her wrist. And if I don't get them to the market by noon, I won't be able to sell them till next week. Then they won't be fresh laid anymore, will they? I'll be stuck with one thousand stale old eggs that nobody wants. I hope they all go rotten, my mother said. Now back that cart out of our way this instant. And to the children standing on the road, she cried out, Jump back into the car. We're going to the doctor. There's glass all over the seats, they shouted. Never mind the glass, my mother said. We've got to get this boy to the doctor fast. The passengers crawled back into the car. The man with the horse and cart backed off to a safe distance. The ancient sister managed to straighten the vehicle and get it pointed in the right direction. And then, at last, the once-magnificent automobile tottered down the highway and headed for Dr. Dunbar's surgery in Cathedral Road, Cardiff. I've never driven in the city, the ancient and trembling sister announced. You are about to do so, my mother said. Keep going. Proceeding at no more than five miles an hour, all the way we finally made it to Dr. Dunbar's house. I was hustled out of the car and in through the front door with my mother holding the blood-stained handkerchief firmly over my whooping nose. Wobbling nose. Good heavens, cried Dr. Dunbar. It's been cut clean off. It hurts, I moaned. He can't go round without a nose for the rest of his life, the doctor said to my mother. It looks like as though he may have to, my mother said. Nonsense, the doctor told her. I shall sew it on again. Can you do that, my mother asked. I can try, he answered. I shall tape it on tight for now, and I'll be at your house with my assistant within the hour. Huge strips of sticking plaster were strapped across my face to hold the nose in position. Then I was led back into the car, and we crawled the two miles home to Landiff. About an hour later, I found myself lying upon the same nursery table my ancient sister had occupied some months before for her appendix operation. Strong hands held me down while a mask stuffed with a cotton wool was clamped over my face. I saw a hand above me holding a bottle with white liquid in it, and the liquid was being poured onto the cotton wool inside the mask. Once again, I smelled the sickly stench of chloroform, and either in a voice say was saying, breathe deeply, take some nice deep breaths. I fought fiercely to get off that table, but my shoulders were pinned down by the full weight of a large man. The hand was holding the bottle above my face, kept tilting it farther and farther forward, and the white liquid dripped and dripped onto the cotton wool. Blood-red circles began to appear before my eyes, and the circles started to spin round and round until they made the scarlet whirlpool with a deep black hole in the center and miles away in the distance a voice was saying that's a good boy we're nearly there now we're nearly there just close your eyes and go to sleep i woke up in my own bed with my anxious mother sitting beside me holding my hand i didn't think you were ever going to come around she said you've been asleep for more than eight hours 
Did Dr. Dunbar sew my nose on again, I asked her. Yes, she said. Will it stay on? He says it will. How do you feel, my darling? Sick, I said. After I had vomited into a small basin, I felt a little butter. Look under your pillow, my mother said, smiling. I turned and lifted a corner of my pillow, and underneath it, on the snow-white sheet, there lay a golden sovereign with a head, with the head of King George on its uppermost side. That's for being brave, my mother said. You did very well. I'm proud of you. Captain Hardcastle. We called them masters in those days, not teachers. And at St. Peter's, the one I feared most of all, apart from the headmaster, was Captain Hardcastle. This man was slim and wiry, and he played football. On the football field, he wore white running shorts and white gym shoes and short white socks. His legs were as hard and thin as ram's legs, and the skin around his calves was almost exactly the color of mutton fat. The hair on his head was not ginger. It was a brilliant dark vermilion, like a ripe orange, and it was plastered back with immense quantities of brilliantine in the same fashion as the headmaster's. The parting in his hair was white line straight down the middle of the scalp, so straight it could only have been made with a ruler. On either side of the parting, you could see the comb tracks running back through the greasy orange hair like little tram lines. Captain Hardcastle sported a mustache that was the same color as his hair, and oh, what a mustache it was, a truly terrifying sight, a thick orange hedge that sprouted and nourished between his nose and his upper lip and ran clear across his face from the middle of one cheek to the other, to the middle of the other. But this was not one of those nail brush mustaches, all short and clipped and bristly, nor was it long and droopy in the walrus style. Instead, it was curled most splendidly upwards all the way along as though it had a permanent wave put into it or possibly curling tongues heated in the mornings over a tiny flame of methylated spritz. The only other way he could have achieved the curling effect we boys decided, was by prolonged upward brushing with a hard toothbrush in front of the looking glass every morning. Behind the mustache there lived an inflamed and savage face with a deeply corrugated brow that indicated a very limited intelligence. Life is a puzzlement, the corrugated brow seemed to be saying, and the world is a dangerous place. All men are enemies and small boys are insects that will turn and bite you if you don't get them first and squash them hard. Captain Hardcastle was never still. His orange head twitched and jerked perpetually from side to side in the most alarming fashion, and each twitch was accompanied by a little grunt that came out of the nostrils. He had been a soldier in the army in the Great War, and that, of course, was how he had received his title. But even small insects like us, knew that Captain was not a very exalted rank, and, the o- and only a man with little else to boast about would hang on to the, the civilian life. It was bad enough to keep calling yourself Major. After all, it was all over, but Captain was the bottoms. Rumor had it that the constant twitching and jerking and snorting was caused by something called shell shock, but we were not quite sure what that was. We took it to mean that an explosive object had gone off very close to him with a, such an enormous bang that it had made him jump high in the air and 
and he hadn't stopped jumping since. For a reason that I could never properly understand, Captain Hardcastle had it in for me from my very first day at St. Peter's. Perhaps it was because he taught Latin and I was no good at it. Perhaps it was because already at the age of nine, I was very nearly as tall as he was. Or even more likely, it was because I took an instant dislike to his giant orange mustache and he often caught me staring at it with what was probably a little sneer under the nose. I had only to pass within 10 feet of him in the corridor. And he'd glare at me and shout, hold yourself straight, boy, pull your shoulders back, or take those hands out of your pockets. Or what's so funny, may I ask, what are you smirking at? Or are you insulting of all? You, what's your name? Get on with your work. I know, therefore, that it was the only a matter of time before the gallant captain nailed me good and proper. The crunch came during my second term when I was exactly nine and a half, and it happened during evening prep. Every weekday evening, the whole school would sit for one hour in the main hall between six and seven o'clock to do prep. The master on duty for the week would be in charge of prep which meant that he sat high on a dace at the top of the hall and kept order. Some masters read a book while taking prep and some corrected exercises, but not Captain Hardcastle. He would sit up there on the dace, twitching and grunting, and never once would lock or look down at his desk. His small, milky blue eyes would rove the hall for uh, the full 60 minutes searching for trouble, and heaven help the boy who caused it. The rules of prep were simple but strict. You were forbidden to look up from your work, and you were forbidden to talk. That was all there was to to it, but it left you precious little leeway in extreme circumstances, and I never knew what those, these were. You could put your hand up and wait until you were asked to speak, but you had better be awfully sure that the circumstances were extreme. Only twice during my four years at St. Peter's did I see a boy putting up his hand during prep. The first one went like this. Master, what is it? Boy, please, sir, may I be excused to go to the lavatory? Master, certainly not. You should have gone before. Boy, but sir, please, sir, I didn't want to, do to before. I didn't know. Master, whose fault was that? Get on with your work. Boy, but sir, oh, sir, please, sir, let me go. Master, one more word out of you and you'll be in trouble. Naturally, the wretched boy's boy dirtied his pants, which caused a storm later on upstairs with the matron. On the second occasion, I remember clearly that it was a summer term and the boy who was put his hand up was called Braithwaite. I also seem to re recollect that the master taking prep was our friend Hardcastle, but I wouldn't swear to it. The dialogue went something like this. Master? Yes, what is it? Braithwaite. Please, sir, a wasp came in through the window and it stung me on the lip and it's swelling up. Master. A what? Braithwaite. A wasp, sir. Master. Speak up, boy. I can't hear you. A what came in through the window? Braithwaite. It's hard to speak up, sir, with my lip all swelling up. Master. With your what all swelling up? Are you trying to be funny? Braithwaite. No, sir. I promise I'm not, sir. Master. Talk properly, boy. What's the matter with you? Braithwaite. I've told you, sir. I've been stung, sir. My lip is swelling. It's hurting terribly. Master. Hurting terribly? What's hurting terribly? Braithwaite. My lip, sir. It's getting bigger and bigger. Master. What prep are you doing tonight? Braithwaite. French verbs, sir. We have to write them down. Master. Do you write with your lip? 
Braithwaite, no, sir, I don't, sir, but you see, master, all I see is that you are making an infernal noise and disturbing everybody in the room. Now get on with your work. They were tough, those masters. Make no mistake about it. And if you wanted to survive, you had to become pretty tough yourself. My own turn came, as I said, during my second term, and Captain Hardcastle was again taking prep. You should know that during prep, every boy in the hall sat in his own small individual wooden desk. These desks had the usual slopping wooden tops with the narrow flat strip at the far end where there were, there was a grove to hold your pen and a small hole in the right-hand side in which the ink well sat. The pens we used had detachable nibs and it was necessary to dip your nib into the ink well every six or seven seconds when you were writing. Ballpoints, ballpoint pens and felt pens had not been invented, and fountain pens were forbidden. The nibs we used were very fragile, and most boys kept a supply of new ones in a small box in their trouser pockets. Prep was in progress. Captain Hardcastle was sitting up on the dais in front of us, stroking his orange mustache, twitching his head, and grunting through his nose. His eyes roved the hall endlessly, endlessly searching for Miss Jiff. The only noises to be heard were Captain Hardcastle's little snorting grunts and the soft sound of pin nibs moving over paper. Occasionally, there was a ping as somebody dipped his nib into violently into his tiny white porcelain inkwell. Disaster struck when I foolishly stubbed the tip of my nib into the top of the desk. The nib broke, I knew. I hadn't got a spare one in my pocket, but a broken nib was never accepted as an excuse for not finishing prep. We had been set and easy to write, and the subject was the life of a penny. I still have that e essay in my files. I had made a decent start, and I was rattling along fine when I broke that nib. There was still another half hour of prep to go, and I couldn't sit there doing nothing all the t that time. Nor could I put my hand and tell Captain Hardcastle I br had broken my nib. I simply did not dare. And as a matter of fact, I really wanted to finish that essay. I knew exactly what was going to happen to my penny through the next two pages, and I couldn't bear to leave it left unsaid. I glanced to my right. The boy next to me was called Dobson. He was the same age as me, nine and a half, and a nice fellow. Every now, even now, 60 years later, I can still remember that Dobson's father was a doctor and that he lived as I had learnt from a label on Dobson's tuck box. In the red house, Uckbridge, Middlesex, Dobson's desk was almost touching mine. I thought I would risk it. I kept my head lowered, but watched Captain Hardsackles very carefully. Hardcastles very carefully. When I fairly sure when I was fairly sure he was looking the other way, I put a hand on my f the front in the front of my mouth and whispered, "Dobson, Dobson, can you lend me a nib?" Suddenly there was an explosion up on the dais. Captain Hardcastle had leapt to his feet and was pointing at me and shouting, "You're talking! I saw you talking! Don't try to deny it! I distinctly saw you talking behind your hand." I sat there frozen with terror. Every boy stopped working and looked up. Captain Hardcastle's face had gone from red to deep purple and was twitching violently. Do you deny you were talking, he shouted? No, sir. No, but, but. And do you deny you were trying to cheat? Do you deny you were asking Dobbin, Dobson for help with your work? No, no, sir. I wasn't. I wasn't cheating. Of course you were cheating. 
Why else, may I ask, would you be speaking to Dobson? I take it you were not inquiring about after his health? It is worth reminding the reader once again of my age. I was not self-possessed lad of fourteen, nor was I twelve or even ten years old. I was nine and a half, and at that age one is ill-equipped to tackle a grown-up man with flaming orange hair and a violent temper. One can do it else but stutter. I, I, I have broken my nib, sir, I whispered. I, I, I was asking Dobson if he could, could lend me one, sir. You were lacking, cried Hardsackle, and there was triumph in his voice. I always knew you were a liar and a cheat as well. All I wanted was a nib, sir. I shut up if, I'd shut up if I were you, thundered the voice of, on the dais. You'll only get yourself into deeper trouble. I'm giving you a stripe. These were words of doom. A stripe? I am giving you a stripe? All around, I could feel a kind of sympathy reaching out to me from every boy in the school, but nobody moved or made a sound. Here I must explain the system of stars and stripes that we had at St. Peter's. For exceptionally good work, you could be awarded a quarter star. And a red dot was made with crayon beside your name on the notice board. If you got four stars... A red line was drawn through the four dots, indicating that you had completed your star. For exceptionally poor work or bad behavior, you were given a stripe, and that automatically meant that automatically meant a thrashing from the headmaster. Every master had a book of quarter stars and a book of stripes, and these had to be filled in and signed and torn out exactly like the cheeks from the cheek book. The quarter stars were pink. The stripes were. A fiendish blue-green color. The boy who received a star or a stripe would pocket it until the following morning after prayers. When the headmaster would call upon anyone who had been given one or the other to come forward in front of the whole school and hand it in, stripes were considered so dreadful that they were not given very often. In any one week, it was unusual for more than two or three boys to receive stripes, and now Captain Hardcastle was giving one to me. Come here, he ordered. I got up from my desk and walked to the dais. He already had his book of stripes on the desk and was filling one out. He was using red ink, and along the line where it said reason, he wrote, talking in prep, trying to cheat and lying. He signed it and tore it out of the book. Then, taking plenty of time, he filled in the counterfoil. He picked up the terrible piece of green-blue paper and waved it in the direction but didn't look up. It took it out of his hand and walked back to my desk. The eyes of the whole school followed my progress. For the remainder of prep, I sat at my desk and did nothing. Having no nib, I was unable to write another word about the life story of a penny, but I was made to finish in the next afternoon instead of playing games. The following morning, as soon as prayers were over, the headmaster called for quarter stars and stripes. I was the only boy to go up. The assistant masters were sitting on very upright chairs on either side of the headmaster and caught a glimpse of Captain Hardcastle. Arms folded across his chest, head twitching, the milky blue eyes watching me intently, the look of triumph still glimmering in his face. I handed in my stripe. The headmaster took it and read the writing. Come and see me in the study, he said, as soon as this is over. Five minutes later, walking on my toes, trembling terribly, I passed through the green baize door and entered the sacred precincts where the headmaster lived. I knocked on his study door. Enter. 
I turned the knob and went into the large square room with bookshelves and easy chairs and a gigantic desk topped in red leather straddling the far corner. The headmaster was sitting behind the desk holding my stripe in his fingers. What have you got to say for yourself, he asked, and the white shark's teeth flashed dangerously between his lips. I didn't lie, sir, I said. I promise I didn't, and I wasn't trying to cheat. Captain Hardcastle said you were doing both, the headmaster said. Are you calling Captain Captain Hardcastle a liar? No, sir. Oh, no, sir. I wouldn't if I were you. I had broken my nib, sir, and I was asking Dobson if he could lend me another. This is not what Captain Hardcastle says. He says you were asking for help with your essay. Oh, no, sir, I wasn't. I was a long way away from Captain Hardcastle, and I was only whispering. I don't think he could have heard what I said, sir. So are you calling him a liar? Oh, no, sir. No, sir. I would never do that. It was impossible for me to win against the headmaster. What I would like to have said was, yes, sir, if you really want to know, sir, I am calling Captain Hardcastle a liar because that's what he is. But it was out of question. I I did, however, have one trump card left to play or thought I did. You could ask Dobson, sir, I whispered. Ask Dobson, he cried. Why should I ask Dobson? He would tell you what I said, sir. Captain Hardcastle is an officer and a gentleman, the headmaster said. He told us, he told me what happened. I hardly think I want to go round asking some silly little boy if Captain Hardcastle is speaking the truth. I kept silent. For talking and prep, the headmaster went on, for trying to cheat and for lying, I'm going to give you six strokes of the cane. He rose from his desk and crossed over the corner cupboard of the opposite side of the study. He reached up and took from the top of it three thin yellow canes, each with the bent over handle on one end. For a a a few seconds, he held them in his hands, examining them with some care. Then he selected one and replaced the other two on top of the cupboard, bent over. Bent over. I was frightened of that cane. There is no small boy in the world who wouldn't be. It was simply an instrument for beating you. It was a weapon for wounding. It lacerated the skin. It caused severe black and scarlet bruising that took three weeks to disappear. And all that time during those three weeks, you could feel your heart beating along the wounds. I tried once more, my voice silently hysterical now. I didn't do it, sir. I swear I'm telling the truth. Be quiet and bend over. Over there. And touch your toes. Very slowly, I bent over. Then I shut my eyes and braced myself for the first stroke. Crack. It was a riffle shot with a very hard stroke of the cane on one's buttocks. The timing before you feel any pain is about four seconds. Thus, the experienced caner will always pause between strokes to allow the agony to reach its peak. So for a few seconds after the first crack, the, I felt virtually nothing. Then suddenly came the frightful searing agonizing, unbearable burning across the buttocks, and as it reached the highest and most excruciating point, the second crack came down. I clutched hold of my ankles as tight as I could, and I bit into my lower lip. I was determined not to make a sound, for that would only give the executioner greater satisfaction. Crack, five seconds, pause, crack, another pause, crack, and another pause. I was counting the strokes, and as the sixth one hit, I knew I was going to survive in silence.
That will do, the voice behind me said. I straightened up and clutched my backside as hard as I possibly could with both hands. This is always the instinctive and automatic reaction. The pain is so frightful, you try to grab hold of it and tear it away, and the tighter you squeeze, the more it helps. I did not look at the headmaster as I hopped across the thick red carpet towards the door. The door was closed and nobody was about to open it for me, so for a couple of seconds I had to let go of my button with one hand and turn the doorknob. Then I was out of hopping around the hallway of the private sanctum. Directly across the hall from the headmaster's study was the assistant master's common room. They were all in there now waiting to spread out their respective classrooms, but what I couldn't help noticing even in my agony was that this door was open why was it open had it been left the way on purpose so that they could hear all more clearly the sound of my cane from across the hall of course it had and i felt quite sure that it was captain hardcastle who had opened it i pictured him standing in there among his colleagues snorting with satisfaction at every stinging stroke small boys can be very comradely when a member of their community has gotten in trouble and even more so when they feel an injustice has been gone. When I returned to the classroom, I was surrounded on all sides by sympathetic faces and voices, but one particular incident has always stayed with me. A boy of my own age called Hinkton was so violently incensed by the whole affair that he said to me before lunch that day, you don't have a father? I do. I'm going to write to my father and tell him what has happened, and he'll do something about it. He couldn't do anything, I said. Oh, yes, he could, Hinton said. And what's more, he will. My father won't let them get away with this. Where is he now? He's in Greece, Hinton said, in Athens. But that won't make any difference. Then and there, little Hinton sat down and wrote to the father he admired so much. But of course nothing came of it. It was nevertheless a touching and generous gesture from one small boy to another, and I have never forgotten it.